This is Radiance Tape Number JD43E, a message by Jim Durkin, entitled, Resisting the Enemy. I'm going to ask you tonight, as I minister this subject, this concluding message on spiritual warfare, keep in mind, what you see a person to be, no, no matter what they are in the Lord, what you see them to be is what they will be to you. This is not only true with people who have flesh and blood bodies, it is also true of the spiritual realm. What you see Jesus to be, he will be to you. If you see him as Savior only, then that's all that he can be. If that's all that's ever preached to you, he's your Savior. You're a sinner saved by grace. You'll always be a sinner until you get to heaven then that's all that Jesus will be to you. If someone comes along and ministers in the Spirit another truth, that he is not only Savior, but Lord of all, and suddenly you see him in a new plane and you say, see, many people when they see Jesus as Savior, they see him hanging on the cross, they see him bleeding and dying. Oh, the bleeding, suffering Jesus. Right? He was that. But that's only one aspect of him. You look at the cross and look at the tomb... And you'll see they're empty, hallelujah. Not the bleeding, suffering Jesus. The triumphant, victorious Jesus who is Lord of all. Hallelujah. And the minute you say that, you feel the change that comes in your heart. The Lord of all, hallelujah. See, it's victory. Because you see him in another light. If you see him set upon the right hand of God, far above all principality and power, and that God has given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, you see him yet in another light. Jesus then stands up and said, All power in heaven and earth is given into my hands. He turns around to us and we say, Lord, you mean you have all power? And he said, Yes, I do. And we say, What does that mean? He said, This is what it means. If God be for you, who can be against you? See, it's how you see him. We're going to take a look at him tonight, and a look at you, and a look at the devil. Now, let me summarize quickly for you what we said about spiritual warfare. Number one, there is a spiritual warfare. The Satan does exist in this world. He has certain power and authority. This power and authority has been granted to him and not taken away from him. Has been granted to him by God and God has not taken it away. I will define the limits of that power and that authority. It does not extend over the Christian unless he lets it extend over him. Now, number one, let me say it again. Satan does have some power. He does have some authority, and I will define the limits of that power and that authority. By means of the power and authority that he does have, he has created a condition that exists in the world among those... Now, remember something here. The Bible says, to whom you give yourself servants to obey, his servants you are whom you obey. Now, the whole world, the Bible says, lies in the lap of the wicked one. They have given themselves over to Satan to obey him. 
and they are the servants of Satan, and they do the will of Satan until God intervenes in that situation, and ultimately we find out that the will of Satan, now hear this carefully, ultimately we find out that the will of Satan only brings about, finally, the will of God. Now let me say this again so you understand it. The will of Satan, remember he's got certain power, certain authority, he exerts it over those who give themselves over to him. They've given themselves to him to do evil, They've given themselves to listen to him. They've given themselves to follow in his ways. And it creates a condition of spiritual warfare. Darkness is upon the face of the earth. The Bible says people sit in the shadow of darkness. They lie in the lap of the wicked one. The Bible calls the people of the world the children of the devil because they're under his control. Some of them recognize him, others do not. But the condition remains the same. They are under his control. The Bible says the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of them that believe not. So their minds are blinded. They are his children. They are under his control. The Bible calls them his slaves in another place. And it says the will of their father they do. And their father is the devil. Now, that produces a condition where the people of the world... And the angelic forces behind them that are fallen, that are followers of Satan, are moving the people of the world to do what Satan sees to be wise. And he is wise. Wise in the ways of the world. Because the ways of the world are his ways. That's why the Bible calls him the God of this world. And so he causes the people to become shrewd, cunning, crafty, tricky, and as a whole, they move to fulfill the will of Satan. But in the glorious wisdom of God, mankind and the devil and his angels moving to fulfill this will of the devil end up really doing what? Fulfilling the purpose and the will of God. Now here is Jesus born into the world. He grows up. He performs miracles such as no man has ever performed before. He heals the sick, he raises the dead, he casts out demons, he cures the blind, the lepers, things that this world has never seen before, he does. Satan possibly recognizes him as the son of God. Maybe he does not. This is of no importance. But he determines, certainly this man who ministers God so powerfully, for he recognizes where that power is coming from. He knows he isn't doing it, so that power is certainly coming from God through the man, and he determines to kill him, if he possibly can. So time and again, as time went on, these three and a half years that Jesus is ministering, he does everything in his power to kill him. People took up stones to stone him with. One time they tried to throw him off a cliff, but something happened every time. One time, the Bible says, the people became angry at him, and they took him out of the temple, and they were going to push him off the cliff. And all the Bible says, and I'm still startled by this wonderful scripture, it simply says... And Jesus, passing his way through the midst of them, went on his way. Men do not control the situation. Satan doesn't control the situation. It may look like he controls the situation for a moment. It may look like men control the situation. But brothers and sisters, God controls the situation. Now let this begin to sink into your spirit. God controls the situation. How do you see Jesus? How do you see 
what the Word has to say about Jesus? How do you see what the Word has to say about yourself? Now, Jesus at some point in his life, now understand, he was born as a babe. He grew in a normal way. There was nothing miraculous about his growth. He just didn't suddenly kind of spring up and he was suddenly five years old and then suddenly ten, suddenly wise. Nothing like this. The Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, let's get the scripture again. He grew in wisdom. That was a growing process as he grew in stature. So he's growing up. Little by little, his body, just like any other normal child. The Bible says he took upon himself not the nature of angels, but the nature of Abraham. In other words, men. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with... Now, listen to these next two words. They are important. And in favor with God and man. We say, oh, well, God was always in favor of him. Yes, but when he came to this earth, he divested himself of his godly attributes. The Bible says he emptied himself. As he picked up the Word of God, led of the Holy Spirit, directed of God, he began to read in here, and a revelation began to dawn upon him, this book is speaking of me. That's why he said later on, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. He began to recognize himself. Sacrifice and offering, the Bible said, Thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared me. And so as he grew and searched the word, the realization dawned upon him of who and what he was. He increased in favor with God and man, such that by the time he was 12 or 13 years of age, we find him in a temple, and the doctors of the law, the brilliant learned men of the day, were standing astounded at his insight into the word of God. Now, John, we're talking about John the Baptist, was commanded of God, saying that one would come after him, the latchet of whose shoes he was not worthy to stoop down and unloose. God was speaking to John and said, you will recognize him, because one day he will come to be baptized in water, and when he is baptized, the Holy Spirit will come and rest upon him permanently. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit never rested upon anyone permanently came upon them, came in them, and then he left them. And they were as other men were. But there was to be a change of things. Now, John the Baptist ministered to this person and that person, the other person. And then one day, one came to him who he was beginning to recognize his life. And he said, Lord, in other words, exalted one, I have need to be baptized of you. Why do you come to me? Jesus said, suffer it to be so, now let us fulfill all righteousness. Normally, the more godly person would baptize the lesser one. The Bible says, giving a principle of Scripture, the lesser is blessed of the greater. And when God could swear by no greater than himself, he swore by himself that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a greater assurance of the promise. The lesser being blessed of the greater. John is looking at this wonderful person who he knows sees his life, and says, I have need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? Jesus said, let it be so now. You baptize me. I'll do it. He baptizes him, and as he comes up out of the water, a miracle takes place. Now understand that John the Baptist saw him before this as a godly man, a good man, a wonderful man. 
But when he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and a Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came down and settled upon him, and a voice came out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. And the eyes of John the Baptist was opened, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. How do you see Jesus? How do you see yourself? John the Baptist was an ordinary man. Having whatever ordinary young Jewish boys have, a godly Jewish boy to be sure. He was raised in a proper Jewish background. He was taught the scriptures. He went to the synagogue. He did what every other Jewish boy should be. But he was much more devoted to the Lord. He spent his time in the desert seeking God. And then one day there came a voice to him. Now remember, before that he would see himself as a Jewish boy of the priestly tribe. And one day in his mind maybe he would grow up and be a a priest like his father. And then one day a voice came to him saying this, John, you're going to be like Elijah. You're going to be the forerunner of my son who am I going to send. You're going to be the one who comes before and you're going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to me. You, John, are going to be a voice of one crying in the wilderness. John, I commission you, I anoint you, I ordain you, I send you. And he knew he'd heard from God. And from that time on, hear me. He no longer looked at himself as John, who would be a priest. He now had a different vision of himself. He knew he was John, who would carry the message of God to that lost Jewish nation, and he would prepare the way for the one who was to come and take away the sins of the world. All right. How do you see yourself? Now, this spiritual warfare, I've showed you how it takes place politically. i showed you how it takes place religiously. I showed you how it takes place in the world system. I showed you how Satan operates financially to impoverish people, to destroy them. I showed you how he deceives nations into destructive wars. I showed you how he inflicts sickness and madness, disease and physical torment upon people. I showed you how he attacks and accuses the brethren. And I showed you how he possesses and torments mankind. And I'm giving no credence to him at all. I'm simply saying this is what he does, and it's obvious that he does it because here's the Word of God says he does that. But not so for you, if you listen to what I have to say tonight. And understand how Satan gets authority. Turn with me to 1 Peter 5, 8. Start with the sixth verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, please notice the scripture before, during, and after the text. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, you remember that I told you earlier, Satan moves with his will to do what he desires to do. He's not always able to do it because God intervenes. But sometimes God does not intervene. Sometimes God lets Satan do what he wants to do, exactly what he wants to do. As a matter of fact, God sees it coming to the devil's mind. The devil can never know what's in God's mind. But God can know what's in the devil's mind and does. And he sees it come into Satan's mind to do something. 
Now, one of the things he saw come into his mind to do was to murder Jesus. So at the proper time, Jesus knows it's his time to depart from this world, and he begins to make his way from where he is toward Jerusalem, knowing that the time for him to go to the cross has arrived. Now, please notice, Jesus has received a communication from God that the time of his departure is at hand. So in the Spirit of the Lord, he starts making his way toward Jerusalem, perfectly protected, Perfectly surrounded. I imagine the devil tried to kill him a hundred times on the way to Jerusalem. Couldn't do a thing to him at all. But Jesus, knowing that the very hour for which he has been born into the world has arrived, he starts making his way toward Jerusalem. He prayed a prayer. He said, Father, shall I say, deliver me from this hour? No, for this very hour came I forth. So he starts making his way toward Jerusalem. At the same time, Satan is looking at him and saying, now remember, having no knowledge of what God has in store for the Lord at all, no knowledge of God's eternal plan, he's off saying, how can I kill him? I don't want him healing any more people. I don't want him delivering any more people. I don't want him talking about God. I tried to kill him a million times or a thousand times, a hundred times. I tried to tempt him. I tempted him in all points, and yet he doesn't fall. I've got to keep trying to kill him. So demons, angels, himself, men, everything... Throw it at him, and not a thing that he can do. But Jesus knows that he's moving toward this point in time and eternity that God has ordained from before the world was that he's to die on the cross. But it cannot be godly men who place him there. It must be ungodly men who place him there. Now Satan is stirring up people. Try to kill him here. Try to kill him there. Try to kill him here. And there's not a thing that can be done. Either their wagon breaks down or they fall and break their arm or they miss the trail where he is or whatever happens and he simply moves through the midst of them. Finally, they take him. They capture him and all night long. Now, please notice this. It looks like he's in the hands of Satan, like Satan has really got him now. He's bound. They're tearing out his beard. They're beating him on the face with a club. But Jesus said beforehand... The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. God had already ordained it perfectly. Jesus was merely walking in the track that God had laid down. And Satan, venting his evil will, was actually bringing about the perfect purpose of God. And devil is attacking on every hand what he can do. And Jesus is saying, For so it seemed good in thy sight, Father. And he just keeps walking toward his destiny with God. Hallelujah. Knowing that not one thing can touch him before the time. Not a thing can harm him. Oh, man, surely God didn't mean that? Well, Jesus said that would happen to him beforehand. He said, it goes as it's written to me. They're going to pluck out my beard. They're going to spit in my face. They're going to beat me. And I'm going to be crucified. Peter said, no. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, you're an offense to me. Savor not of things to be of God, but of men. And then he goes to his destiny. He sets before Pilate. Now notice Pilate's words. Pilate said, do you not know? Now Jesus said this before. Listen to Jesus' words. He said, no man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down. And what? I have power to take it up again. Jesus knows this. 
He knows he's to go to the cross. He knows he's to submit to this indignity and torture. That's part of the plan. He submitted to God. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. God assured him it was not possible. He sent his angel and strengthened him. And Jesus rose up and went to do what he had to do in God. Sets before Pilate. And Pilate says to him, Do you not know, he said, that I have the power to take your life from you or to set you free? He said, You could have no power at all except it were given to thee from above. Therefore, he that hath delivered me unto thee hath the greater condemnation. He's talking about the devil. Now, God had backed off. Oh, Jesus was in no danger at all. You are in no danger, brother, at all. Here's a devil setting up way up there. He must be about 500 feet away because he couldn't get much closer than that. I'll tell you the glory that I feel. Hallelujah. Sitting looking down and say, Oh, I'd like to kill every one of them. But he can't do it. Hallelujah. You listening to me? Hallelujah. So, Satan, now. He says, Ha! Ah, I got him. Ha! Ah, I got him. Tell him that, Pilate. Tell him we're going to kill him. You don't have power to kill you? So you could have no power at all. Except that we're given thee from above. Therefore, he that had delivered me unto thee hath the greater condemnation. And the Bible says, from that time, Pilate sought to set him free. But he couldn't do it because he was afraid. And instead of standing up for what he knew to be the truth, and hear me today, how important it is, brother, at all times and sister, to stand for what you know to be the truth. Let your confession equal the truth of that book. When that book tells you something is true, you confess it no matter what seems to be different. The Bible says about Jesus, he confessed and denied not, but gave a good confession to Pilate. Pilate said, I have the power to kill you. said, you have no power at all. What? No power at all. Satan says, I'm going to destroy you. He said, no man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down, power to take it up. This I have received from my Father. Hallelujah. Now what? If God be for him, who could be against him? So he submits himself to this. And they bring him out. They lay him down. They drive nails into his hands and his feet. He hangs on the cross at a certain period of time, tortured, thirsty, in pain. And all of the time that he's there, people are yelling at him and say, come down from the cross, crucify, oh, this and that and the other. He saved others himself. He cannot save. And right while... He's in all of that agony and pain. He's in absolute control of the situation. He turns around to one man on his side, begins to minister to him, and the man cries out to him in the midst of his pain and said, Lord, now notice this please. When he saw Jesus and cursed him and reviled him, swore at him, Jesus could do nothing for him because all he saw in Jesus was an object to be cursed at. When a few moments or a few hours later, I don't know how long it was, he turned around and his eyes were opened and he saw him not as a man to be cursed and sworn at, but he saw him as he was and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. 
Now please notice, the moment that he recognized Jesus, even though all the outward circumstances told the man this could not be anything but a poor misshapen hunk of humanity. The Bible says he was beaten so bad he was scarcely recognizable as a human. His back was a mass of torn, rend flesh. It was a terrible sight that he beheld as he looked at Jesus on the cross and yet something cleared away the veil and he saw him for who he really was and said, Lord. And at that moment, I'm telling you, all heaven opened up. And right in the midst of Satan standing there saying, oh, he's going to be dead pretty quick. He's going to be dead pretty quick. We got him. Right at that moment, that divine flow reaches out and he snatches another one right out of his kingdom and takes him. <laughs> Hallelujah. How do you see Jesus? How do you see yourself? That man now saw himself differently. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. <laughs> I can imagine a man hanging there and said, I feel like I'm in paradise right now. Hallelujah. And Jesus, at that moment when he came, listened to his words. Six hours, whatever number. He looks up to heaven, fulfilling the scripture in Psalms 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That moment when God withdrew from him and he hung there between heaven and earth suspended. He became the object of sin, the object of revilement of both man and God for a moment that we might be the beloved of God forevermore. That moment when he cried out that horrible, piteous cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At that moment, God withdrew from him. He felt that for the first time, the spirit gone. And at that moment, all of the sins of mankind, everyone you ever committed and I ever committed, and everyone that anyone in the world ever committed from Adam's day until now, and for the rest of time, however long it may be, were heaped upon him there. And he bore those sins. And then that dread moment was over, and the Spirit of God returned unto him and listened to it now, totally in control of the situation again. Satan ready to take his life, and he looks up in heaven and said, It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Hallelujah. Jesus never lost control of the situation. And I want you to know that you don't have to lose control of it either. Because as God was with his son Jesus Christ, so Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are with you now. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil... Now, how many know what that word, the devil, means? What does the word devil mean? Slanderer. Your adversary, the slanderer, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Now, let me tell you how this operates. Because the devil can have no power over you at all. And I'm going to read some scriptures pretty soon to show you that, unless you give place to the devil. You have power over the devil, power over all the power of the enemy, and nothing can by any means hurt you. But the Bible says your adversary, the slanderer. Now let's see his method, because the way he gets his authority is by deceit, by lying, by trickery, by cunning, and by force. He has no power over Christians at all, and yet the Bible speaks in the book of Timothy, says in the last days some will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Some, the Bible says, will be led away from the truth. 
because they don't understand this principle I'm laying down. Paul in his day said we are not ignorant of the devices of the devil. We are aware of his wiles. And yet the church in 1973, for the most part, are not aware of his devices. They don't understand how he works or what he does. Now, the chief method by which he deceives the godly people, the church people, the true Christians, so that he's able to get an advantage upon them, is by slander. He slanders if he can. Before I know the truth, you see, the Bible says, ye shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But he slanders because I don't know how to resist him yet. Oh, I do now. I'm talking as a young Christian. He slanders God to me. How many of you know what slander is? Slander means when I tell a bald-faced lie to someone about this person here to reduce that person in the eyes of this person. Now, something happens in my life, some little test or trial. And the devil comes along and says to me, what kind of a God is this that you're serving? And if I'm not careful, I'm liable to say, yeah, I wonder about that. Or the devil says, if God were really in your life, things like this wouldn't happen to you. So yeah, that may be true. Or he comes along and says, you see, those brothers over there, those sisters, or that person or this one, they hate you. Yeah, they are looking to be kind of funny. Now, remember what I told you. What you see a person to be, and what you see a being to be, that they become to you. If Satan can come to me and tell me that God is not such a hot God after all, and I listen to that, and I begin to say about God, well... Seems to me if you were really this loving God you talk about, you wouldn't let that happen to me either, God. Or maybe I'm really afraid to say that. Haven't got so much courage to really say it, but I think it inside. Yeah, I'm not going to say it outside because God might kill me, but uh, kind of bad, Lord. You sure shouldn't do that to me. Not knowing all the time God knows what's going on in me, but devil slanders God to me. And of course, he slanders me to God. You find that in the book of Job. He said, look at that. I went down there and I talked to Jim Durkin and I told him you were a no good God and look at him down there. He thinks that you're a no good God. What do you think of that? Let me go to him and let me really blast him a good one and then he'll really curse you to your face and he'll go off and he'll be a sinner again. Slander. There are times when a Christian can get so far away from the truth that he becomes an instrument of that slander against his brothers. And so we find ourselves saying of some brother that might be of a little different idea about some things than we are. In other words, he looks at the end times a little different, or he looks at eternal security a little different, or he looks at the baptism a little different. Say, brother, I think that guy's of the devil. That's slander. The Bible says, don't you judge God's child. To his own master he stands or falls, and yea, he shall stand, for God can hold him up. Now, we have no place in entering into the slander of our brothers and sisters and thereby becoming instruments of the devil. We don't do that. We don't slander each other. We don't listen to the slander of the devil about God. We don't listen to the slander of the devil about the Bible. We don't listen to the slander of the devil about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. We don't listen to the slander of the devil about anything. Come into a church. Maybe you like a quiet service. 
I'll show you how these things work. They're powerful, but they have the effect of blowing you out completely and making you open for the devil to have more inroads in your life. Come into a church service, and here's a bunch of brothers, their hands are raised, praying the Lord. I went someplace just the other night. I don't know where it comes from, but somebody said, Whoa! Where's that part? All right. Now, when we listen to that, you always say, oh, he shouldn't do that. And our mind gets all taken up with, what was that? Well, now, you know who is right there to yell something like that in your ear if you've got that kind of an ear? Don't pay any attention. If a brother acts a little bit improperly, all that it takes is to say, praise the Lord. There's a brother happy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that glorious, brother? I'd rather have him doing that than out here in some drug den or down on Skid Row someplace, stone drunk. Used to go by and remember this old guy down there by the name of Bob Trevia. And they tell me many times that people saw him in the gutter down there, just laying in the gutter, just sometimes all oh, just laying there, hanging down, sometimes vomit out the side of his mouth. Terrible condition. One day we're down there preaching the gospel, finally got saved, the brother did, completely redeemed. Well, now, brother, he didn't always act right, because he had a lot of problems. That alcohol hurt his brain and hurt so far. He just kind of was a funny guy. We said, oh, brother, I don't know if we want that kind of funny guy in church or not. Listen, don't you let the devil ever put any kind of slander like that into you or me or any one of us at all. Brother, I'd rather see a guy funny staggering around because he can't get himself together because of alcohol or whatever the condition is. God's able to heal. But brother, as long as he's in the fellowship of God's people and we can minister to him, that brother's growing up into Christ. And I'd rather see him staggering around in here than laying down in the gutter on a skid row anytime. Hallelujah. So slander is out. But the Bible says your adversary, the slanderer, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Anybody that'll listen to him and join in the slander game. Get it out of your spirit and out of your system altogether. And brother, 99% of any chance of the devil ever getting you at all is gone. You've learned his main device. All right, he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There are four points that I want to bring to you. That there are occasions when God, for purposes of His own and for our own good, permits attack or sifting by evil powers. Now let me go over that again. There are occasions when God, for purposes of His own and for our own good, permits attack or sifting by evil powers. Take a look at Job. Now, the Bible says about Job, he was a good man, he was a meek man, he was a godly man, one that feared God and hated evil. There was no sin in him, or there was something in him that was wrong that God would have to root out later, but there was no point of rebellion in him against God, whatever. And he did everything he could, not only to live a godly life himself, but to set an example for everyone else that he could. You might even say in that regard he was like Jesus, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And yet for a moment, though he never lost control of the situation, Jesus was literally delivered into the hands of Satan. For a moment. The same situation with Job. Job didn't know what was going on at all. Now you've got to understand this. And not lose your head if it ever happens to you, and it will if you go on and work for the Lord. There are times that you're going to go into an area preaching the gospel and somebody's going to beat the daylights out of you. 
You think, oh, brother, I just want to go on an area and preach the gospel and see if 100,000 people get saved. You'll see that too if you go on with the Lord. I think we're in for the times of the mightiest revival the world has ever seen. But, brother, there's also going to be times when, just like Paul, they're going to take you outside of the city and stone your head in if they have to and can do it. And they'll be allowed to do it. That's the point I'm trying to make. There are times when God permits it. But it's always for His own glory and for your good. Now, He takes Job, and God says to Satan, He said, all right, you can lay your hand on everything He has. Now, notice the control. Nothing is out of God's hands. The devil's not free to do anything he wants, only what he's permitted to do. He says, you can touch all that he has, but do not lay your hand on him. And so he takes this and this and this and this and this. Don't you think he doesn't want to get on him, and But there isn't a thing he can do. Then a little later on, I don't know how long this period of time was. might have been a day, might have been many days. Same thing happens, and God says to Satan again, you can touch his body, but do not touch his life. And he was smitten from the top of his head to the crown of his feet with sore boils, so much so that he is spared of life. But the Bible says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips nor charge God foolishly. Now consider for a moment the slanderer. Is this your God? What a God, Job! Don't you see he was trying to urge Job to say, God, I served you all my life, and now my property is gone, and my children have been killed, and my body is rocked with disease. What kind of a God are you anyhow? Then he got his wife, Job's wife, to come and say, you wretched, miserable, misshapen hulk of a man, curse God and die. Brother, that's pressure. That's enough to make you say, all right. Job only said, you talk like a foolish woman. Shall we receive only good at the hands of God and not bad things too? When he heard all of his property was gone and his children were gone, he rent his garment, threw ashes upon himself, and said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. You know what the devil would have done in a similar case like that? What he thought Job would do. He would have cursed and swore. Job only said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Victory. But there are times when God does let Satan get a hold of a guy. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan had desired thee to sift thee as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Now, he didn't say, I pray for you that you don't go through that sifting. He said, I pray for you that your faith fail not. And, brother, the devil took Peter and began to... And that was where he cursed and swore and denied that he ever knew Jesus. And then went out and wept bitterly. After the resurrection, Jesus said, Now, you go tell my disciples and Peter... Single him out. I want to see him. Come back here, Peter. Now, if you can understand that, that sometimes that can happen to you. Paul talks about himself. He said, because of the abundance of the revelations given to me, there was a messenger sent from Satan, a thorn in the flesh, to buffet me. 
And I prayed unto the Lord three times that this would depart from me, but God said, My grace is sufficient for thee. Now, please notice. Don't you know the devil came to him and said, Paul, ha-ha, what a God you got. You prayed three times for me to go, didn't you? Well, I'm not going, see. I'm going to start persecution where you're here, and there's going to be trouble there, and I'm going to get this one, and you're going to get stoned again, and this and that and the other thing. And Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, for when I am weak, then am I strong. What he was saying, brother, when I'm nothing, God is everything. Hallelujah. And I imagine the devil, what kind of people are these Christians? Why don't they curse and swear and deny God and slander? Brother, because God is holding us up. Hallelujah. That's why. And the devil can't understand it. Paul spoke in another place. He said, I would have come unto you, but thus far Satan hindered me. I don't know why God let that happen, but it did. But did it slow Paul down? Oh, no, my ministry's all done. The devil's after me. Well, I know. If he couldn't go this way, say, hmm, can't go through there now, Lord. Want me to kick a hole in that wall? No, just don't want you to go through there right now, okay? You stay right there, devil. Don't move either. I'll be back and see you in a few days. Walk right over here and start preaching the gospel again. A thousand get saved over here. Hallelujah. I was holding back over here. Look what he did. He went over there and he got another thousand. You run over there. Here Paul comes walking back. And he gets on with the work of God. There are times God will allow Satan to... And you can't get through. Don't worry about it. Oh, the devil's getting me. The devil's not getting you. The devil can't get you. Hallelujah. Brother, God's got you. Hallelujah. God has you. Now, it is a battle of authority. Wherever you see Satan, it is up to you to exercise authority. I'm going to tell you how to do that. Let me continue these principles. The realization that Satan and all his angels and demons have been stripped of their power to achieve ultimate victory over any child of God. Now, they can receive what looks like a temporary victory. Just like when the devil killed Jesus on the cross, he thought he did. But see, just as he comes up to do the job, Jesus just went up to be with the Father like that. What? He was there a minute ago. Where did he go? Gone. Now, just when the devil is ready to do something on you, he has no power to achieve ultimate victory, though temporarily it looks like he's got you. But he never has you. Never. The Bible says there is no temptation that can take you. But such is as common a man. But God is faithful who what? Will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. Brother, the devil hits you with some things that you wouldn't know how to handle. Not at all. But he can't do it. Ah, there's a temptation that'll get that dirt in. This is the one that'll get him. And maybe it would. Maybe I'm not ready to handle it. Maybe I don't have an understanding of my relationship with God that clearly yet. Because my relationship with God is much clearer than it was ten years ago. And maybe he's right. This will get him. Toss it over and say, think that'll get him. Oh, I know that'll get him. Let's get him. Ah! And then suddenly he finds out a whole army of angels standing there and they're saying, back off. Back off. Back off. And here I'm just standing there blissfully. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Good to be walking around here in your blessed presence. Hallelujah. The devil's up there. Oh, I can get him. He can't get me. 
no temptation. Just what the Father knows I can get the victory over. Now, you've got to understand that. And, brother, when you're being tempted, it's a chance to glorify God. It's one that you can handle in God. And so when it comes, don't get out and say, Oh, God, what would you do this to me for? That's just what the devil wants you to say. The Bible says, Rejoice when you fall into manifold temptations. Rejoice when you fall into... Hear the devil's tempting you on every hand. What's the secret when the temptations are there? What's the secret? Pray and rejoice evermore. Pray and rejoice evermore and submit yourself to God. And the devil will back off from you going, oh, oh, oh. How did he get out of that when I thought sure I had him? Listen, the realization that Satan and all his angels and demons have been stripped of their power to achieve any ultimate victory over any child of God. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Colossians 2, verse 15. Now I want you to begin to see Satan, what the Bible has to say about him. Let's look at verse 9. For in him, speaking out Jesus, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All right, now get a picture of Jesus. Sometimes we're liable to get a picture like three in one. Well, that's a proper picture in its proper place, but let's not get too heavy on that. Because you're going to miss something. See, some people emphasize a whole different idea, and they're just trying to emphasize a different idea. We've got to emphasize a balance that keeps it in balance. The Bible says that in Jesus. Now, we're looking like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the way most people look at the Godhead. And that's proper for some things. But it's not proper for others. And this particular scripture, the Bible is giving us a remarkable picture. It says, for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of the power, all of the glory, all of the majesty of the Godhead dwells where? In Jesus bodily. Now let's see what else it says. And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. I told you in earlier studies how Satan is called in different places his angels, principalities, and powers. But the Bible says all the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus, and he's the head of all principalities and powers. That means he's on top of the situation at all times at every level. Which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism. Now you have to see this. How do you see yourself? I have been put into Christ, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, buried with him by baptism into his death. James Durkin that the devil had plenty of power over the James Durkin that was a child of the devil, the James Durkin that was a tool of the devil, literally did anything the devil wanted him to do. How do I see myself? I see myself that when I was about 20 years of age, I walked up to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Lord, kill me. He said, I'll do it. Pow! And in baptism, I was buried by baptism, the Bible says, into death. And then... 
raised up again, the Bible says, in newness of life, a whole new creation. Now, it didn't take place when I baptized. That was a picture of it. But more happens there than just a little picture, a little testimony. That is a powerful faith happening if you'll let it be. A thing that drives it into your spirit if you'll let it happen. A whole new creation was raised up at that point over whom the devil had no power. I will have to deliberately give him power over me or he can have no power at all. He cannot possess you. He cannot oppress you. He cannot make you think any thoughts. He cannot tempt you that you're above, that you're able. He can do nothing to you at all. You have power over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, buried with him in baptism, wherein ye also are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now that means that I don't care what you did back there. All these things existed in your life. And brother, there were plenty of them. It simply means that God pulled down a curtain on those things. And where did he pull the curtain down? He pulled the curtain down in his own mind. The Bible says, your sins and your iniquities will I remember no more. They are gone forever. And every man has to learn to do exactly what God has told him that he has done. He has to see it like God. Brother, I've got a whole lot of things back there behind me, but I tell you the truth, I can hardly even remember them anymore. I have to work at it to even conjure them up anymore. And believe me, I don't work at it anymore either. I just let that lie because God pulled a curtain on. I said, that's good enough for me, God. If you pull the curtain down, thank you, Jesus. I'm going to look that way and begin to go on and do what you told me to do. Now, I had to learn that. It was the early days of my Christian experience. Satan to keep saying, look at that back there. Look at that back there. And I used to foolishly do that and begin to look at that and say, oh, oh, oh. And God finally says, look at it through my eyes. And I looked at it. And all there was was a curtain of the blood of Jesus Christ, and I could see nothing beyond that curtain. Now he said, turn around this way, son, and look at me. And I said, Father, I see nothing but the light of life. And he said, come on toward it. And I began walking toward that. Not toward that which was. That which is. Is your goal. All right. Now let's read on here. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now, you remember I said earlier that Jesus was the head of all principalities and powers? Now, look at the 15th verse. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, let me read this out of Phillips. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. And then having drawn the sting of all the powers ranged against us, he exposed them, shattered, empty, defeated, in his final glorious triumphant act. Hallelujah. Now what it simply means is that when God got through with raising Jesus from the dead, I tell you something, when Jesus came down off that cross, laid in that tomb. His spirit was already taken down into the lower parts of the earth where he was to deal with that situation down there. No point in going into it now. But after three days and three nights, 
Satan was doing whatever he was doing, jumping around with glee, figured he really had him now because here he was down there and this and that and the other thing. Then after three days and three nights, the Bible tells us in the book of Psalms, you remember the New Testament Jesus revealed that when the rich man died, the Bible says in hell, he lifted up his eyes and he looked across the way and he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he cried out to Abraham and he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus, I pray over here that he may dip his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in his flame. And Abraham said, Son, in your days upon the earth, you had your good things, and Lazarus is evil, but now he has his good things, and you, you're evil. But beside all this, there is a great gulf fixed between you and I. So the day which would come over from us, you cannot, neither can you come over to us. A great gulf fixed. You see, hell or Hades was really in two parts. Over here were the righteous, and over here were the wicked dead. Now, no one went to heaven before Jesus came into this earth. He was to be the firstborn from among the dead. He was the first to lead the train or the procession into heaven. So all of the righteous that died in God or in Abraham, they were the followers of Abraham, they went to what was called Abraham's bosom and they waited patiently for the coming of the Lord. And for three days and three nights, Jesus was doing what had to be done down there, atoning for the actions that we had committed, bearing our sins, clearing that situation up. At the end of that time, the Bible tells us that this side where the righteous were held was with bars of brass and gates of iron. The Bible says, but he has broken asunder the gates of iron and the bars of brass. At the end of that three days, he ripped that door literally off its hinges. I don't know what it was like. I'm giving you what the book of Psalms says. He literally ripped that door off of its hinges, and he led a triumphant procession right out of the depths of Hades up to the earth again, where the Bible says on the third day he raised from the dead. And it says also in that same, if you read it in the Gospels, it says the graves of many that slept were open, and they came out of the graves and walked through the cities, and they were recognized by many. Brother, the things that happened on the day of his resurrection were absolutely fantastic. They came literally, and those graves were open. They came walking right through the city again. And people, oh, isn't that, what, 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 Yeah, they saw that. That actually happened, the resurrection. Now, I want you to notice the next part, because you've got to understand the Scripture. For the Bible says, Jesus drew the sting from Satan, pulled it out of all the powers that were ranged against us, and left them broken, shattered, and defeated. Now can you see Satan realizing what has been done? Knowing that his judgment is complete. That God testifying by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those gates of brass being broken in sunder, those bars of iron being ripped out of their hinges, and that triumphal procession coming out of Hades where he always held the people, for he had the power of death. The Bible tells us this, that Satan had the power of death. Now it had been ripped away from him, and here these people came back to life again and literally were resurrected, and now were being led by Jesus back to heaven. He hurled all of his forces at this thing to hold it down. I tell you something, if you could have seen what happened in heaven at that moment, as Jesus just simply began to rise up toward the Father with this great train of godly men and women who had waited down through the ages for him to come, and they began to rise up as Satan hurling everything at him he had, and just simply Christ, boom, boom, boom. And all the angels hurling these powers back until Satan was broken, smashed, defeated, prostrated in every way, everything stripped from him. Jesus just triumphing over him and it went directly up to the Father. Now I'm telling you something. The only power the devil has against you today 
is to make you believe he has power to resist you. No power whatever. Jesus said, I give you my name. Now, he doesn't mean use it like a formula. He said, I give you my name. When I went up to my father, I batted him aside and stripped him of everything. And I tell you, my children, he is nothing. Now, how do you see him? Oh, the devil. Or do you see him like Jesus says he is? He said, I beheld him as lightning fall from heaven. Plunk. Hallelujah. Now we're going out into a warfare. I want you to see two things. Number one, that this universe is absolutely in the control of the hands of Almighty God. There is not one thing Satan can do unless God permits it. And no matter what the devil does, it will ultimately bring about the perfect will of God. There is nothing he can do except bring about God's will. That's all he can do. He doesn't want to. He strives to thwart God's will. He wants to stop God from working. And there's not a thing he can do. Now on the other side, here you are. And to you, you know that he's an adversary. You know that he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know he's a slanderer. Now you know what to do so that the will of God may be worked out in your life. You know that you must not listen to him, and you know that you must know the truth about it, that he has no power except to lie to you and get you to believe the lie. Now, how do you keep the victory over him? By the confession of your mouth and the belief of your heart and the action of your being. I must bring you back to this again because it is basic to everything you will ever do for God. It is necessary for me always to believe something in my heart. I will either believe what I've learned in the world, or I will believe what the Word of God tells me is true. Now, all around me, the world testifies to me that the Word of God is not true. I can't see God. I can't normally hear God. Can't by my senses discern God. But the Bible tells me God exists. And deep in my spirit, I know it to be so. And if anyone comes to me, now the slanderer comes and says, how do you know that God exists? Well, yeah, how do I know that? The Bible says, be able to give to every man a reason for the hope that lies within you. You must know that. Look into the innermost parts of your being and see what the Spirit's testimony is to you. Does God exist? Then when does Satan come to you and said, does God exist? Say, yes, he exists. Know the word of God. Yes, he exists. And he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. See? Jesus knew how to answer the devil. He knew how to handle a situation. Oh, if you be the Son of God, Jesus didn't even answer his question. Ridiculous to even waste any time with it. He simply gave him the scripture and went on his way. You must know the Word of God if you want victory over Satan in your lifetime. You must know the Word of God if you want victory over Satan. See? All right, now here. You have, the Bible says, power over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus Christ is Lord. At His name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and nothing shall by any means hurt you because you have power over all the power of the enemy. Now, here you are as a Christian ready to do battle. 
you realize that this city of Eureka is ruled over by an evil prince. The time will come when we'll have to go to San Francisco. That city is ruled over by a man. He must be a weird evil prince. I'll tell you that for sure. That is a weird, weird city if there ever was one. Back in New York, we have a little ministry back there. We didn't start it. God started it. But eldership is extending across 3,000 miles. Had to tell those people that today. Didn't understand it. They said, we need an elder. We need one right here. I never did understand that before until God revealed the situation to me. Always thought an elder had to be right there, right at the moment. Just had to be that way. If it didn't, the whole work would collapse. There would be times when that would be true if we could do it. And we wouldn't send an elder there. we say, oh, no, we can't send any of our elders because we need all of our elders here. God tells us, send one. Brother, you better send one out there. Here's a little group of only six people now in New York. And all around them is a terrible ghetto neighborhood. People come up to the front of their doors with clubs and threaten to beat them to death. There have been knife fights in the house. Three days ago or four days ago, a man was murdered just a few doors down the street. Terrible conditions exist in that ghetto neighborhood. But they feel that God put them there. And then the pressure of the enemy came in upon them, and they didn't know how to handle it, and they didn't know what to do when they were getting weak, because they didn't know the truth of God's Word. Then our brother Gregor, who does know the truth of God's Word, Time to take his vacation. We said, Gregor, can you start a few days early and go by there and minister in the spirit to those people? They are in need of a strong elder to speak to them. Gregor said, I'll do it. Went on home, came down there, and just before he got there, they had decided, I think the same day or the day before, day before it was, that he got there. They had sat down in their discouragement and voted to disband the whole work. And one was going to go hitchhiking around the country, and two were going to take off here, and one over there, and the other this and that, and the other thing. Let the house go and let the ministry go. And our brother Gregor, I'm sure, knowing the principles of spiritual warfare, looked at that great city, that evil prince that ruled over it, and said, Back off in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back off! And then he sat down with those six people, and he began to give them the word of God. Hallelujah. And I called him yesterday, or rather they called me, this girl Anita, who's kind of watching over the place along with some others, and talked to him the day before that also. And I tell you, the whole thing had changed. They said, we were ready to leave here just yesterday, but Gregor came and he gave us the word of God and we're together and committed like we never were before. Hallelujah. Now don't you know the devil is up there saying, ah! Amen. Don't you know the devil would have killed Gregor and Linda if he could have done it? He couldn't do it. Hallelujah. Gregor walked right in the middle of that great wicked city with that great evil prince up there. said, stand back. I have a message to deliver from the Lord to these people. Hallelujah. And he's backed up. Hallelujah. Spoke to Anita this morning. And I said, I want you to know, Anita, that you have eldership in that place. Well, she said, there's no elder here. And I told her, I said, Anita, eldership can extend across 10,000 miles if you believe it. We are your elders here. And in prayer, we're holding up that work, and it will not fall. 
There's not a devil in hell that can make that work fall as long as they hold that vision and we hold that vision. And brother, sister, I tell you, Tim and Ann Nabokowski are on their way back there and some folks from Mendocino just happens uh, that they're going back there on their honeymoon or just happens uh, that a mother sent out a week ago or two weeks ago money and says, will you come back to New York and visit me? Haven't heard from their mother in a whole long, long, long time. He said, the mother said, come back here and visit me. And the people said, we want to go to that ministry in New York and strengthen their hands back there. Hallelujah. God is in that. Now the evangelistic team is getting ready to roll on the 4th or the 5th or the 6th. 15 of them going back there. Hallelujah. Brother, I tell you something. Satan is getting ready to get shook up in New York. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, no. No, no, brother. We're talking about victory. The devil is nothing to me. He's been defeated, broken, smashed. He's through. We have the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit in our lives. And he has no power over us at all. Now get that vision and get that victory. And don't go around and say, oh, the devil does this to me and the devil does that to me and the devil does... The devil does nothing. He has no power over you at all. Hallelujah. Now I'll tell you, I feel something has been released here tonight and I'll tell you what I feel has been released. I think there has been released into your hearts a faith vision. Number one, that you see Satan utterly stripped, defeated, wounded, paralyzed, and finished. His sting has been pulled, and he has no power over you at all. I think, furthermore, you see a faith vision of that work back in New York, and you see that our eldership is extending 3,000 miles and covering that place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the devil can't do nothing to those people at all. They are going to minister in power back in that place. I ask you tonight to see yourself as having power over all the power of the enemy and that nothing has the power to hurt you whatever. Anymore. Finished. The Bible gives us one final admonition. 1 Corinthians 10.10. Listen to it, please. Neither be ye murmurers or complainers as some of them were. Now, Satan cannot get you to slander God and slander your brother. He'll get you to grumble and complain to act contrary to the scripture which says in everything give thanks and rejoice evermore. You're given a job to do by the brothers, job to do by the steward of the sisters, a job to do in the community, a job to do by God. And sometimes the devil comes to us and says, isn't that a rotten job? He isn't slandering God, and he knows that won't work. If he came to you and said, isn't God a rotten God, you'd pick that one up. But he says, isn't that a rotten job? God surely wouldn't want you doing that, would he? Now then, your slander turns away from God to the brothers. And we say, that can't be of God because they wouldn't give me this kind of a job because I should be out preaching the gospel and not doing this kind of a job. Let me tell you from long experience, I've learned this. I am, by the grace of God, being enabled to raise up men and women who are going to go to the ends of the earth and preach this gospel. But I'll tell you this now, and you might as well get it deep into your heart. I have never seen one man or one woman ever raised up, even before I had the revelation of this truth, who was not willing before they were raised up to do anything that was given to them to do. I had to learn it myself. To work in a mill, to clean up manure piles, to simply be a man who would sweep down. I actually ended up at one time before God was ready to use me, my job was cleaning out toilets every night. And brother... I used to grouse and complain about it. I had an education. I had this. I had that. I could get it. How come this, that, and the other thing? God finally got me to learn that cleaning out toilets with the joy of the Holy Spirit in your life was victory. 
preparing me for a greater work in God. And most joyfully, therefore, I went in those dirty old toilets, and some of them were plugged up, and I'm telling you, they were horrible-looking messes, and I cleaned them out. And I said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Amen. People come there and say, how can you be happy in a job? They say, got the Lord in my heart. Chance to witness. Say, that guy must be crazy. But I left a powerful witness in that mill before I finished it. We're being trained, brothers and sisters. There's a vision in my heart that God has put here. In Istanbul, the country of Afghanistan, and walk along that hippie drug trail, and go to Korea, and Vietnam, and Asia, and all over the world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every single one of you, if you will hear me today, can be a part of some far-flung work. I was telling the brothers down in Mendocino, I passed it along. I've done this many times before, but sometimes with new people, I'm not able to pass along everything that's on my heart till the Lord lays it out. I asked them a question, and this was the question. You were the only Christian on the face of the earth. Only Christian. And you went out, and you worked for a whole year witnessing. But there wasn't a soul who had ever heard the message before, and seemed like no one would listen. And finally, at the end of the year, you finally got one person to Jesus Christ. One person. And all the three and a half, nearly four billion people. And you call them back and you said, Joe, just two of us, as far as I know, in the whole world. And what I'm going to do, Joe, we're not going to stay together like this, except to come together once in a while, maybe have some fellowship. But I'm going to go out there in that world again, just like I did, and maybe I'll find another one someday. And I'm going to go witnessing for Jesus out there. I know he's real. And I'm going to take off this way, and you take off, and let's meet here again at the end of the year and see what happens. And so Joe takes off, and Jim takes off. At the end of the year, I come back, and I've won just one more. But Joe also comes back, and he says, My, the Lord was with me. I thought it was never going to happen, but just at the last minute, I won one. And after, was it three years now? Just four people that know the Lord. What you say to those four? Yourself and three others, let's go try it again. And they go out, and at the end of that year, there's just eight, then 16. I asked the brothers and sisters down at Mendocino, how long at that rate? Me just winning one a year, and just everyone, that's all they're winning, one a year. But each one wins one a year. How long at that rate would it take to reach the whole world for Jesus Christ? Now, people have given me different answers. Man, some have said, man, it would take forever at that rate. The truth of the matter is, it would take just 32 and a half years to win the whole world for Christ. Now, I'm telling you something. The reason why after 1,800 years of Christianity, over half of the earth's population has never even heard the name of Jesus, and a thousand tribes have no scriptures in their own language, is for one reason. Men have abandoned God's method, and they substituted their own. Now, I'm telling you, we are, by the grace of God, reestablishing God's method and giving up man's method. I'm telling you, you're going to have to give everything you have, everything you are, everything you ever will be. You're going to have to devote yourself wholly and completely to the vision of worldwide outreach. You're going to have to be willing to go and commit yourself to that going and not say, well, I'm willing to go if I can go to England. No, you're just going to say, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. Well, I've heard over there in those oriental countries, brother, the devil is strong. No, he's not strong. Not strong to the man who knows the truth. 
That man has been set free. That man is called by God to go. He'll set foot on the shore of that dark land and say to that evil prince who rules over that and all of his fallen angels and his demons, back off in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've landed on this shore and we're going to take it for Jesus. And he began to walk on that place. You are going to be those people. Now you get that vision in your heart now. And you let nothing, nothing take it out of you. This in-town ministry is going to go through this town for Jesus Christ. We're going to reach out in every direction. But some people have not understand God's plan. They think the method is the concentric circle plan. In other words, we start with Eureka, and we extend a little bit to Fortuna Arcata, and then we go to Ark, and then we go to Ronaville, and then we go. That's not God's plan. You've got to understand that. God's plan is divine insanity. Insane only to those who are human. But brother, not insane if you see it through the eyes of God. God's plan is to get a nucleus like this and raise them up at a certain point and then give them one of two choices. Now you hear it. I'm preferring the first choice because I'm reading the Word of God. He gives you the choice of voluntarily going. And brother, every time we get enough strong ones raised up, then I get them out of here quick. Now you've got another choice. And in the old days... God called it sending the sword among them. In today's parlance, I think he'd bomb us out. That's what I think. Here we get, oh, brother, we're preaching the gospel, and finally we got 300 and 400 and 600 and 1,000, 2,000 people, the greatest church the world has ever seen. I'm standing there preaching all these strong deacons and elders and all. Oh, look at them. Look at them. Wonderful, wonderful. What a church I've got. Got to say, i got a surprise for you, Jim. See this stick of dynamite? See this match? You know what I'm going to do now? <laughs> Boom! And he'll blow one of those elders over to China, and he'll blow another one over to Arcade, and he'll blow another one up to Alaska, and another one down to Mexico, and wherever those elders land. Open her Bible and say, the Lord Jesus Christ loves you, brother. Now, that's just what happened in the New Testament. Here they were all just going around there. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Church is growing. You ever see anything like this? Us Jews are really on fire for God and we're filled with the Spirit. It's all so wonderful. Oh, isn't this wonderful Jewish religion? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. God says, go into all the world. Be witness unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea. Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Not first Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria. Both. One at the same time. No, oh, they were all, oh, isn't this wonderful? This wonderful. The Bible said, God sent the sword. And brother, they were scattered everywhere. And the Bible says they weren't preaching the gospel everywhere. But you got a choice better than that. You don't have to wait for the sword. You know what the plan is? As soon as you get a strong one raised up, take them like this and say, go. And another strong one raised up and you say, go. And another one, go. And everywhere they land, they begin preaching the gospel. And another body springs up. This is God's method of geometric progression. Then here's a body, and here's a body. They're not in concentric circles. One may be way across the earth. One may be up in Alaska. I don't know why God took us from Eureka to Alaska. My, it's much better in my mind for Eureka to Arcata. God didn't do that. Eureka to Alaska. Now, a work springs up in New York, and they call all the way back 3,000 miles and said, Hello? Hello? Yes, who is this? Uh, this is the New York ministry. It is? Well, yes. Yes. I'll tell you how that happened. A brother was disobedient. Now, I'm not suggesting you should be disobedient. Brother, that brother went through it. 
He was disobedient. He left before I told him. I sent him out. You can be sure of that when the time was ready. But he left before the time. Now he's back with us. A blessed brother. And he's blessed when he went. But he left disobediently. Maybe he misinterpreted what I said. And he went, oh, he went here and here and here and here and just all messed up. Finally landed in New York, all blown out. Wrote me a letter, said, brother, now I repent. I'm sorry I should never have left and this and that. Will you pray for me and hold me up? Of course we would. Gladly. Forgave him. Hold him up in the Lord. Next thing, back in New York is a ministry. And here's a brother calling him saying, hello, this is the New York ministry. Will you send us an evangelistic team? And will you send us elders? And will you send us this and that and the other thing? And I'm saying, but, but man... We haven't even got enough people to keep this ministry going. Now, what do you think God's plan is? There's the ministry. What are you going to do? Well, I tell you, we got one or two things we can do. We can call up and say, I'm sorry, after intellectually perusing the situation back there, we do not feel the logistics will permit us to transfer one of our better men back to the New York ministry. I guess you'll have to sink. I don't yet know who we're going to have to send. I may have to go back there myself and minister among those people for two or three or four. I don't know about that. But I know this, that God has laid that ministry on my heart. And reinforcements are starting moving back to protect that ministry. And God, one way over here, the furthest you can get west in Eureka. And then he starts one way over there as far as you can get east. And he said, now, let's start building them together. Hallelujah. Now, Brother David is over in Europe. Hallelujah. And he says, Denmark, that's where we should start a ministry. And I think we ought to go down to Greece and get a boat and start going to all the aisles and preaching the gospel down there. Hallelujah. Now, isn't that crazy? But I kind of feel something crazy like that could happen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And here we are in some moth-eaten old tub maybe, or maybe some glorious sleek liner. I don't know what it'll be. But anyhow, it'll be putting along there. We'd be putting up to an island. And here goes this little army trotting down the gangplank with Bibles and tracts. They praise the Lord. Here's the guy. Now, that doesn't make sense. But I'll tell you something. This gospel is going to be preached in all the world, Jesus said, for a witness. Then shall the end come. Amen. Give yourself wholly over to the work of God. We're going with it.